Hey there, and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm Rachel Geringer, and in this episode, we're exploring Appalachia's complicated, ongoing relationship to national media coverage. First, I sat down in the studio earlier this spring with several Apple Shop staff members to talk about how the organization has produced media despite and in spite of oversimplified national stories about our home. Then, we'll hear from my recent interview with longtime national public radio reporter Howard Burkis, who talks about how technologies and conversations around journalism have shifted over the course of his nearly 40-year career in public radio. And he shares a few favorite stories from his decade as NPR's rural reporter. For 50 years, Apple Shop has used cultural organizing and place-based media, arts, and education to amplify unheard voices of Appalachian people and to connect their vision and insight with others. Countless films, plays, gallery exhibitions, pop-ed curriculums, youth documentaries, and community organizing initiatives have been born out of this organization over the past 50 years. And yet, even still, all these years later, the stories national audiences see most often about this complex southern mountain region come from outside. Often flattened into a homogenous and oversimplified space of despair, despondency, and dependency by an outside gaze, Those of us in and of this place understand our homes to be complex, contradictory, beautiful and awful, just like any place. This spring, I sat down with several Apple Shop employees to chat about how the organization responds to ongoing, oversimplified national media coverage of our homes. I was joined in the studio by Mimi Pickering, a longtime filmmaker and radio producer at Apple Shop, Ada Smith, the institutional development director here at the shop, and Taylor Pratt, a youth media producer and peer trainer with the Appalachian Media Institute and All Access EKY. My name's Taylor Pratt. I've worked at Apple Shop for about two and a half years now, and I'm a youth media filmmaker and a peer trainer for AMI, the Appalachian Media Institute. Great. Um, I'm Mimi Pickering, and I'm a, I learned filmmaking at Apple Shop a long time ago. So I make films, and I also uh, produce radio with WMMT and direct the Community Media Initiative, which has a project called Making Connections News, where we tell stories about the region. Um, and I'm Ada Smith. I'm the Institutional Development Director here at Apple Shop, and um, I'm involved in fundraising. Great. So we're going to be talking today sort of about um, Apple Shop's work historically and today kind of in relation to, but also maybe in spite of <laughs> national media representations of the region. Um, but I think to start, maybe we could talk a little bit about Apple Shop history and how the very earliest years of Apple Shop in some ways could be seen as a direct response to national media coverage of the region. Sure. Well, Apple Shop started as a war on poverty program to train young people in the region in film and television production. And part of the idea was kind of a vocational training that, um, you know, people would get those skills and then join the industry. But I think the folks here pretty quickly uh, understood that there wasn't an industry, and so it would just be training young people to leave the region, which didn't make any sense. And um, the other part of Apple Shop was really providing an opportunity for the first time, for really the first time, for people in the region to tell their own stories in the media. 
And I think we, we probably forget um, that you didn't have a little device in your pocket that would take movies back in those days. And, and you know, the equipment, the cameras were $30,000. You know, the film was uh, at least $400 for 10 minutes of footage and processing and that kind of stuff. So it was a very expensive process that um, people just couldn't access. So part of the, you know, the way the region was portrayed was it was people coming and telling this, what they thought was the story or they saw was the story, but not um, the opportunity for people here to actually tell their story. So Apple Shop really started with a focus on providing that opportunity for young people to tell a story they wanted to tell, um, whether it be about a guy who worked in the mines with their dad or a grandparent or folks they knew here or there. And, and those, um, those stories were met really positively. You know, people were all around the country, actually. They start, we started sharing them, and, and there was really good response. And so then the idea grew, well, why don't we just um, create a company and keep doing this here? So it kind of started that way. Yeah. Is there more you would add or any anybody about sort of the, maybe in particular the war on poverty, like what that national media coverage looked like since so much of, since Apple Shop both was a project that came out of that, but also... Um, I feel like in some of the films that I've seen, there's a direct naming of that, like that was the only media young people had ever seen of their home and how how powerful it felt to be able to tell different stories. Yeah, I mean, I um, obviously feel like from the footage I have seen from major news outlets during the war on poverty, I think um, it wasn't just this region, right? It was communities across this country that were getting um, imaged in a very particular way. There was a lot of voyeurism um, and a lot of uh, trying to, I think, um, not always with necessarily bad intentions, but try to show the realities people were living in um, to try to stir social um, interest and support for trying to change the conditions people's lives were in. Um, and so, you know, I think it wasn't, I, I don't think all the journalists and reporters were necessarily um, doing it with a like, uh, we just want to show poor people and show how horrible it is because it's interesting to us. Or um, we have some um, shock and awe value. And yet there was a shock and awe value. And um, I think there um, really was a sense of um, not realizing um, that there were a lot of people in the United States of America um, that were living in conditions um, that some people weren't seeing on a daily basis. Um, and I think particularly in Appalachia, right, it was a, um, uh, it was a lot of white poor people. Um, and I think the country hadn't reconciled as much with that since the Great Depression. Um, and so I think uh, there, again, at least from my sense, is that, um, you know, there was an interest in trying to figure out how do we change this? Why are people in these conditions? Um, and what can the federal government do about it? Um, what can people across the country do about it? Um, and yet, we know poverty is a very complex problem, and unfortunately, images stick with people for a very, very long time. And um, it takes uh, 
decades and generations to change economic opportunity in places that have structural issues. And um, I think the images um, uh, don't change in people's minds, <laughs> even as economies shift. Um, so, you know, I think uh, there's a a lot that we still are reckoning with just from that time period and the images that were happening then. Um, and again, at least for me, there's a little bit of um, even the war on poverty reckoning with the Great Depression imagery. You know, so there's there's been a history of kind of a particular lens towards poor people. Yeah. Um, so... I'm curious, sort of, maybe maybe this might be a question for you um, in particular, but how maybe in your work, kind of over nearly 50 years here at this organization, right, um, you've seen personally, but also sort of the organization um, kind of balance this like production of media very much like by and for people in Eastern Kentucky and Central Appalachia, but also sort of a navigation of like how how much um, I think media makers in and from this place are constantly at least have in the back of our brains <laughs> this history of images and representation that continues, right? I mean, there's still books coming out that paint this region in a, in a very simplistic way. There's still national articles coming out that do the same thing. So I'm just curious if um, you could speak to that for either personally or sort of how you've seen the organization navigate some of that? Well, I think it, um, some of it is involved in deciding what stories to tell. And I think that, you know, we have um, worked with people and told their stories who were, um, quite a few of them who are really folks who um, you could say were living in that poverty stereotype, but through their own um, work have uh, organized and organized other folks and, you know, fought for change. Um, I mean, I think there is a reality of poverty in the region, there's a reality of poverty all over the country. And, but it's really important to show people that um, are working to change that situation and particularly people who come from that place. Um, so, you know, I've done some films on, um, particularly some uh, women who were singers who wrote songs about their own experience and um, and those songs, you know, then they performed them and spread them and, and really helped organize with them. And per people like Hazel Dickens, the singer who actually went on, you know, picket lines and, and sang and, you know, worked to uh, provide encouragement to people struggling for better life and justice and equity in the, the region. So I think that, um, you know, and there are a lot of Apple Shop media in that vein, and that breaks through some of the stereotype. I mean, one stereotype of the region is that people are fatalistic and passive and just um, have lived this way forever and, you know, don't do, don't act uh, at all. And I think that that is such a, a misperception um, where there's such a history of uh, activism and organizing in the region. So that that has been a lot of our work. And then we, um, you know, we've also distributed our media and really thought it was really important um, to not just make it, but get it out to people and um, get it out regionally, 
it, it when we first started, it was harder to do because it was 16 millimeter film and you kind of had to get in your car or truck and take a projector and a screen and go up a holler and hope there's electricity and, you know, show a film or something. But um, as as technology moved, uh, we found ways, say, to um, put the films on educational television, like in um, KET that covers all of Kentucky and West Virginia and um, Southwestern Virginia and East Tennessee. So we created kind of a network in the region to um, share our documentaries and then also work to get them on national uh, public television and screenings in schools and libraries. And and you meet, um, you know, I've met a lot of folks who said, oh, I was in you know, such and such a class. And I saw that film. I've had people talk about the Buffalo Creek flood film and say, I saw that and, you know, I decided to be a lawyer Mm -hmm. (laughs) or those kinds of things. And we have people also who say, I saw roadside theater do jack tales in my elementary school. And, you know, I didn't know that was our history. And and, uh, that really got me interested. So I think we've had, you know, impact regionally locally, regionally, and nationally in uh, some good ways. Yeah. Well, and I, th- I was just thinking about what you're saying about this, the stereotype of people in the region being sort of passive and fatalistic. I, I, I just saw something this morning on Twitter that a friend shared. The title was, um, should Democrats even bother I with rural America? <laughs> I was going to bring that and up. So it's kind of, it's like not just an Appalachian specific thing, right? And around these election cycles in particular, in this current moment, it feels like there's a lot of talk about like, how to solve the issues of rural America, right? Happening a lot from outside, outside of rural yeah. America. And so I think that's um, in particular to me, like something that I really value about Apple Shop's history is is showing sort of that like, whether there's national attention to it or not, that, that rural people are clearly trying to solve our own problems, right? And have been across the country and world <laughs> um, for forever, because that's what people do. Yeah, I think there are so many um, misconceptions about rural America, and it's it's uh, you will see. <clears throat> we've had some people from this region who've written opinion pieces for the New York Times, and then the responses to them. It's like, did you read that? <laughs> you know, did you actually read that? Because it's just people have these blinders on, and uh, you know they they're. It also seems like they perceive Southern people, rural people, Appalachian people as, you know, ignorant and bigoted and blind. And yet they act that same way when they, you know, they do not appear to be open minded when it comes to, um, you know, actually listening to people from different places. Yeah, and I think um, there's such a ahistorical view of what is happening in uh, communities that have been um, economically exploited and disinvested in. And so I think that's the other curious thing to me is, again, whether you're talking about uh, rural people, whether you're talking about poor white people, whether you're talking about urban um, folks who are mostly communities of color, like there are histories of policies that have uh, literally moved people and taken away public uh, dollars towards their communities. And we can track them. There are books about them. There are movies about them. And yet people will look at a snapshot of a particular moment and a particular family in a particular circumstance and decide that that whole group of people is to blame. Right. Um, and it's, it's just really interesting that uh, our country can't seem to uh, grasp even a 
20 or 50 year history of what's been going on and why someone might be put in a position that they're in um, and might make a mistake, um, right? Or that um, <clears throat> I think it's very interesting, especially around issues of criminal justice or environmental degradation, that it's um, often uh, that uh, an individual or a family should have done something. <laughs> Um, instead of realizing that people are living in traps and um, that uh, everyone's allowed to make a mistake, um, everyone's um, trying their best in any situation they're in, um, and yet we uh, don't situate their context in any view besides a, a, a very particular moment. And, you know, I think the story's easier to tell if you don't. Um, but, you know, I think about it in East Kentucky um, of how much the uh, one of the stereotypes of women here have been that we're always pregnant. Right. And that all we do is take care of children and that we're uh, getting pregnant just to get federal dollars. And, you know, it's like let's talk about the structural realities of access to birth control. You know, it's just there's no mention of that within an uh, image and a story. Um, and so I think um, um there's questions to me about um, does a journalist just want to get clickbait in the 21st century or do they want to try to understand what's truly happening in a place? Yeah. Well, and speaking of access to birth control in the region, <laughs> Taylor, I'd love to hear from you kind of as a youth media maker and you've been around Apple Shop here now for a couple of years. If anything sort of we've been all talking about so far around sort of like the national images that you see and then how you're trying to produce work that tells a different story um if there's something you'd want to say about that i feel like when people see all these pictures like you are talking about they just see as eastern kentucky as um we don't wear shoes we're all the time pregnant we get pregnant when we're like 13. so like the work that we do with all access um the media that we we produce um is very informational we like doing uh, a lot of like Facebook videos. I'm trying to think. Tell so us about much. the one you did last summer uh, with your grandma. Oh, the documentary. Okay. So in Eastern Kentucky, it's like pretty common for, I guess, grandparents or unbiological people to raise uh, some sort of distant kin or, you know, grand grandkids. So uh, we had an all access summer last semester for the Appalachian Media Institute, and we all there was three uh, films that were created, that were created, and um, they were all about reproductive health. Um, they were all about reproductive health. And uh, the one that me and Emily Collier created uh, had both of our grandparents in it. And uh, we talked a lot about how uh, grandparents talk to you about sex, ed sex education, because like, if you're not getting it from your parents and uh, the school systems that we have, in our region, they're all abstinence only. So, like, you don't learn sex education. You don't learn a sex education in school. So, uh, in our documentary, we talked about uh, why grandparents raise their grandkids most of the time, and most of the time it's drug related. Um, I don't know. No, that's great. <laughs> what were some of the other films that were made that summer? Because there were some good ones. Do you remember the other groups? I mean, I remember the the films, but I don't really, I don't really remember what they were about. 
That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> there was a an, L- an LGBTQ film, and I think that one was called uh, I Know My Body. Mm. And it was really great. Uh, here in Eastern Kentucky, there's really not a lot of medical help for people that, you know, are trying to... Yeah. <laughs> no, it's like there's not a lot of healthcare access for queer and trans yeah. or gender nonconforming people that's like where where healthcare providers are educated about those yeah. communities, right? And they normally have to like go away from their home to get healthcare. Mm-hmm. So uh, in that film, they talked about like why that was a struggle and why moving, like not really moving, but why traveling to get healthcare shouldn't have to be an issue. You shouldn't have to leave to get, you know, treatment. Yeah. You should be able to just stay right home and get it. Yeah. yeah, and what it does to your psyche to feel like the only place that accepts me or understands my body or sees me as a whole human being is three hours away from home, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, even my peers around me, have, uh, maybe the only information they've been able to get is through the internet, right? Um, when actually there's an amazing, diverse array of people in these places and in our own communities. Um, and that's what I find so powerful about some of the work y'all do, Taylor, is that uh, y'all kind of bypassing the whole national media and just talking right to each other. Other, right like that's why Facebook videos are so exciting for y'all because uh, you're not trying to get to some big press about it right you're not trying to make sure CNN hears what you, I mean we do want CNN to hear about the work <laughs> but that's not the way you know your peers are going to get the information they need I feel like uh, if you hand like AMI is like really important because like young people we don't we don't care what people think about us we'll, we'll go out and do anything and uh, I feel like in our media, we talk a lot about things that probably wouldn't get done if it wasn't for, you know, us being such a vocal in our community. Yeah. And, you, you know, you were talking, Ada, about the, the complexity of the issues and all. We do have, you know, high teen pregnancy rates here, but one of the, we also, with the um, media that we're doing, are trying to get it to healthcare providers because they're not particularly uh, perceptive always of what the issues are, you know, when young people um, are coming to them and, you know, privacy is a big issue in small towns and um, their attitude towards young people and, and it, it kind of goes on and on. So um, Taylor's been amongst the folks who have showed their media to um, people in the healthcare industry to kind of break down, open up their understanding of what young people are facing. Um, and that I think that's really important part of the whole project. Mm-hmm. And we have like really good doctors around here, I think. I've met a few of them and I've had to go through a few of them to find like a really good doctor. And I feel like young people are scared to go to the doctor, like I was for the longest time because of like personal reasons of uh, being young. And just having a doctor just not understand you, it's really hard. And I feel like that's why people make accident, well, have accidents and get stuck in these situations is because uh, they don't know how to talk to their doctor about like getting birth control or any other issues that they have. They just don't go. Yeah. And we have quite a bit of resources in Eastern Kentucky and probably everywhere else uh, that people don't know a lot of or people that they just don't use them like the health department hands out free condoms and stuff and uh i don't think of anything else 
but sometimes they do like free testings and stuff and uh i feel like people on these people that live in these hollers and stuff don't hear about it it's like they don't get to access it yeah yeah um I'm going to ask one last question, I think, um, which is sort of um, from each of you. <laughs> what do you wish national media would do different when covering the region? I don't really know a whole lot of national media. Like, can you give me an example? Well, I think what Ada said about how you all are just like kind of not even worrying about it. And yeah. <laughs> trying to do I your mean, own thing is really powerful and also a strategy that I think makes sense that young people would have in this region like you're not seeing yourself represented nationally right or like your communities and so why even mess with it <laughs> um but i guess to some of those stereotypes that you were saying that you think people see about the region mm -hmm. um do you think there's things people who are making media about the place could um do differently and it's fine if you don't have an answer awesome. um i don't really see a lot of media about the region either but uh, instead of doing something differently, like I feel like with media, it's always changing. So like to be able to get that audience and to get people to, you know, be interested in it, it's always going to be like what everybody else is watching. Mm. So I feel like that's important. It can't be like, I guess, outdated or not interesting. It has to be what everybody else is normally Scroll through Facebook and see, turn on the TV and see, get on YouTube and see, stuff like that. Yeah. Thanks. That's great. <laughs> I don't know if I answered your question. No, that's great. That's great. <laughs> Mimi, do you have some? Um, well, one thing, you know, it used to be that there were more reporters, more journalists based in the region. So they might be reporting for the Louisville Career Journal or the Lexington paper or the Knoxville paper or whatever, but they actually lived in um, southern West Virginia or eastern Kentucky. And and many of them, you know, lived their whole careers and lives in the region. And so I think that um, did encourage more uh, genuine and realistic reporting. I think the, the fly-in reporters, it's always going to be, you know, very... Uh, quick takes and bringing their all their baggage with them um so that's one issue but i think also there's a lot of of media being made you know by folks around apple shop and other places and you know um it is easier now to share that through social media and the internet and all that but i think um more national media could also be sharing those stories that are really, you know, written or um, produced radio, audio, film writing by people in different places. Um, and I, you know, they have their own, uh, their own set of sort of stereotypes about what's national, what relates mm -hmm. to their audience, et cetera. And I think a lot of that is kind of gatekeeping and not really, not really true at all. So, um, the, the possibility is there to make and share the stories and uh, those outlets could do a better job of accepting them and sharing them. Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, uh, to me the uh, biggest thing national media could do is um, 
every summer, um, AppShop has a summer documentary institute through the Appalachian Media Institute. And almost the first four weeks is just about media literacy and understanding the power of editing, understanding the power of framing, understanding the fact that in a group of 15 people, uh, everyone looks at an image differently and we all have different opinions about it. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of journalists and uh, national reporters know that. Um, and yet what's been really interesting to me lately is like in articles, they'll say that they'll say something like, I know what I'm saying is not going to be uh, <laughs> taken the right way. Um, but, but, <laughs> and then they'll go on. And there's an interesting kind of reality to me right now where I'm just like, well, then uh, there must be a deeper story there. If you know that what you're saying isn't necessarily going to be taken right by everywhere, then like, why don't you take the time to figure out what the story actually is? And so, for instance, I think about that a lot with what's happening around rural America right now. And there's no reason to engage in rural America. And it's uh, everyone's moving out and the economy's suffering, blah, blah, blah. It's like maybe there's a whole story there about how that narrative is allowing access to a lot of corporate interests to control all of our water, our land, our food, you know, our energy resources, and how that actually might screw you in a city, right? Like, there's, um, if that is the continual narrative you see, there's something to interrogate. There's something to investigate. And I'm just shocked that know uh, that when your job nationally is to look at those patterns, that there's not more attention to it. Um, so I, I guess that's what I want is a, a um, almost like a national reporters and medias to do a little more media literacy reflection. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I think my request would be similar to what all of y'all have said, but also I think it's it's a lot around uplifting the media that's already happening and investing resources in supporting in particular young people who want to be making media about their communities in places that are often documented from outside in gaining the skills and or access to these national networks right because even um even if young people are like getting some of those skills it's there's there is a lot of gatekeeping to get their stories to a larger audience and and so that's kind of what i would love to see more of as there is a lot of attention on uh, <laughs> rural America and rural reporting these days, it seems. You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT. I'm Rachel Geringer, and in this episode, we're exploring Appalachian and rural communities' long and complicated relationships to national media coverage. We just heard a conversation I had earlier this spring with Mimi Pickering, Ada Smith, and Taylor Pratt about AppleShop's ongoing production of place-based mountain media, despite, and at times in spite, of oversimplified national depictions of our region. Next, we'll hear from my recent interview with Howard Burkis, who talks about his nearly 40-year career as a reporter for NPR. Burkis retired in late 2018, but most recently, he spent eight years working as an investigative reporter for NPR, focusing primarily on the black lung epidemic in the central Appalachian coal fields. In this interview, he talks about how technology and public perceptions of journalism have changed since the early 1980s when he started out. And he shares a few of his favorite stories from his time as NPR's rural correspondent. I'm Howard Burkus. I uh, spent 38 years as a uh, correspondent for National Public Radio. I've spent 20 years covering the American West, 
10 years covering rural America. Um, the final eight years of my uh, career, I um, did investigative reporting, workplace safety, coal mine safety, workers' compensation, and other stories. I was hired at the end of 1980. I was part of the first group of reporters. There were eight of us that NPR hired as it um, decided to build a national reporting staff. And I was going to cover the interior Western states. Hmm. Uh, and I was based in Salt Lake City. Wow. Well, so I want to get more into that because I'm really curious about your career, but also sort of um, your perspective on radio and how radio has changed and just like media and journalism over that period of time. But I'm also really curious if you have a first memory of radio. Um, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I would listen to uh, baseball games on the radio. Uh, my parents would listen on Sunday mornings to something called the Bagels and Locks Hour, which was a <laughs> radio show out of uh, New York that played, you know, klezmer kind of music and um, st stuff I did not like at all, but <laughs> it was on. Um, but my, my biggest uh, connection to radio when I was a kid was when it snowed and I would listen for school closings and I would, you know, I'd be huddled under my blankets in my bedroom at night. Um, so, you know, my mom wouldn't hear the radio and I'd had a transistor radio and I would be listening for the school closings because that was the most exciting thing. <laughs> That's great. You were yeah. like, this is what I want to do. Let kids know. There's no well, school. <laughs> you know, um, later on, like in high school, uh, I listened to top 40 music at the time and, um, uh, one of the top 40 disc jockeys from a radio station in Philadelphia came to our school on a career day and talked to everybody. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and in high school, uh, I joined a couple of classmates who were interested in radio and we did a kind of a radio program on the loudspeaker system in the school, which is mostly the morning announcements, you know, and stuff like that. And we played being, you know, radio announcers and I would do the commercials. We'd just, I'd write commercials and, um, and we even went to our local radio station, commercial radio station and proposed a show that would feature us. And they just kind of laughed at us. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, but, you know, but then it was, you know, after that, it was quite a long time before I ended up back in the radio realm, um, you know, at least 10 years or so, because I did other things in between then. I always had an interest in journalism. Um, my dad was a politician and subscribed to every newspaper in the region to check on what they were saying about him. <laughs> so we had five or six newspapers delivered to our house every day, and I would read every one of them. Um, I liked reading the Jack Anderson muckraker column. Uh, Jack Anderson was a Washington-based reporter who was an investigative reporter, and he would report on government wrongdoing and that sort of thing. And um, that was in one of those papers, the Philadelphia Bulletin. And I read that religiously. I just liked the idea of him catching people in the act of doing something wrong. Mm. Um, uh, but I had, you know, I had a couple of other 
careers until I finally ended up as a volunteer at a public radio station uh, in Oregon at the end of the 1970s. Interesting. So in the 38 years working in public radio, right, technology has changed a lot. Um, I think public media has changed a lot. There's kind of really different conversations happening around journalism um, these days than maybe there were 38 years ago. Um, and this is a kind of vague question, but I guess I'm just kind of um, curious about like having a career through all those changes yeah. and what that's meant uh, for your reporting um, and also kind of connection to public radio. Well, the technology is a big and interesting piece of it. So covering the Mount St. Helens volcano in 1980, and really for at least another 10 years or so, no cell phones, no laptops, no computers. Um, and so if you wanted to file a story, you had to find a phone, a landline, and you had to take it apart and hook up alligator clips to the mouthpiece of the phone and plug that into your uh, tape recorder wow. and feed a story through the phone that way. And more than once, I would wake people up in the middle of the night to see if I could use their phone. You know, um, if you couldn't find a pay phone or they, the phone company started gluing the mouthpieces onto the phone. So we carried around um, canning jar wrenches to, <laughs> you know, force open the mouthpiece on the phone so we could access the, uh, the little tabs that you'd hook up your alligator clips to. And, and then you'd have a, and it led to a cord that led to your recorder. And that's how you filed stories. And in big stories like Mount St. Helens, um, we, uh, I was on a press pool that flew around with President Carter as he surveyed the damage from the volcano, which was an amazing experience in and of itself. And when we landed, our helicopters landed at this remote airfield, there was one payphone and this long line of reporters, you know, standing in line to file their stories at this one payphone because that was our only option, you know. So there, there have been those kinds of changes um, where now, as long as you have a cell phone signal, uh, you can file from anywhere. And actually, if you have a satellite phone, you don't even need that. Um, uh, so and now everything we do, we do on a laptop from editing to uh, recording. You can record directly if you want to. But, you know, all you need is a laptop, basically, other than a recorder and a microphone. Um, but. You know, before digital um, recording and and digital tape, I would end up um, mixing pieces with three real, four reel to reel tape recorders. You know, one recorder had my voice, my narration. One rec one recorder was playing back the interview material I had, and one recorder was playing back the sound, and the fourth recorder was recording. Wow. And so you, you know, and I did all my own mixing um, in early in my career. Uh, so, yeah, things have changed dramatically in terms of technology. Um, in terms of journalism, I'm not sure that much has changed except the way that journalism is perceived. You know, now journalism itself is under attack uh, by some people. Um it uh, the advent of uh, cable news and 
the sort of talking heads on cable news, which is not journalism, it's opinion, um, has, and many people don't understand that, has been a problem for people understanding what journalists really do. Um, so I think that's more of an issue. Reporters weren't considered with as much suspicion, you know, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, um, as they are now. So it becomes theoretically more difficult to have people trust you. Although I have to say with what I do, I've just, that has not been a problem. Um, one great thing about covering rural America, as I did for 10 years, was that I was often the only reporter the people I spoke with had ever seen, you know, face to face, because nobody bothered to go to their communities or to talk about the kinds of issues that they cared about. And so uh, in most cases, people were actually very happy, you know, to have a reporter pay attention to them and what they cared about. It, it's a more of a challenge maybe to get people to trust reporters, um, but it's all about how you behave, what your track record is. You know, you can demonstrate to people that you're fair. Mm. Um, it, it's really important to be transparent these days, more so than it used to be, I think, to explain the process to people and, you know, the, this interview, how it's going to end up in a story and uh, encourage them to feel like, you know, to understand that they have control if they don't want to do the interview, they don't have to. I mean, you know, the you, you don't think you need to say that, but it's, um, it's important to, to do that, I think. Mm. So, yeah, I'm not sure how much else has changed in terms of uh, where we are in this age of journalism. I'm curious, if, from your perspective, why you think that um, mistrust of reporters has grown Oh, well, I, I, to me, it's very clear. So it's, it's not understanding that journalism is not opinion, um, that journalists have a responsibility to be fair and to be complete and to seek out multiple points of view. Um, and uh, because of the advent of talk radio programs and um, on commercial radio and um, cable television talk programs where you have panels of people who are expressing their opinions, you know, those people generally are not journalists. Um, this is a, a nuance that is not necessarily widely understood. And so there's an expectation that what you're doing, you're doing out of a particular point of view or opinion, or you're being an advocate for a particular point of view. And you know, journalists are not advocates. Um, we will develop an approach to a story that may have a point of view based on what we've learned, but we better have the data or the facts or whatever to back that up. And we have to be fair to the notion that there are other ways of viewing it and we should present that as well. You know, that's what journalism is. Um, there's a there's a search for truth in journalism. Um, all the other stuff, truth doesn't matter. It's what somebody, you know, believes. And what they believe may not be based on fact, may not be based on data. In fact, you know, you can be sure that in many of those panels where you hear people talk, you know, people are, are pulling facts out of thin air. They repeat things that they heard. And, you know, politicians do this all the time. Uh, on talk programs, 
um, they'll state things as if they are fact. And um, it's up to us if we say something to make sure that it's true. Hmm. You know, that's our responsibility as journalists. So I think uh, the waters have been muddied. Um, and then also, you know, we're under attack. The president, um, you know, lo loves this term fake news and um, attacks journalists who don't cast things in the way that the president wants them cast. And so, um, and politicians have been doing that for a long time, but it's as, it's much more blatant now. And because the country is so divided, um, it forces this picking of sides uh, among people. And so news organizations are cast based on how favorable they are to, how favorable they're perceived to be to a particular point of view about something. Hmm. And um, that, you know, the death of, a, of journalism is to take a point of view, is to, is to take a stance or take a position. That doesn't mean, you know, to me that what that means is if, if my reporting points to a conclusion, then yeah, let's say what that conclusion is and back it up with the reporting. But we should never be about setting out to do something that is advocating a position and all we do is whatever is necessary to advocate the position. That's not journalism. That's propaganda. Hmm. That's what public relations people do. Hmm. I want to talk a little bit about rural media um, because clearly Apple Shop and WMT are have been sort of in this um, in this realm for 50 years now of producing sort of in many ways media very much from and also for a particular local place, which isn't really a national media approach, right? Um, and some of that, some of Apple Shop's founding was kind of in response to some of the war on poverty coverage of the region that was really, that still sticks in people's minds in terms of folks who haven't spent time in this region's association of kind of um, Appalachian poverty, which there's reality to, and also um, the ways in which some some kinds of national coverage can can feel very damaging to certain communities. I think that's something that like we think about a lot at Apple Shop and at WMT. And I'm really curious, um, particularly in this current moment where there's a lot of interest in rural media. Um, I feel like there's a lot of national kind of conversations around how to better cover rural spaces or deal with the fact that rural newspapers are closing. And um, I guess I'm just curious kind of about your your relationship to having been sort of um, a rural focused reporter for many years when I don't think that was as much of a widespread national conversation as it is now. I'm not sure if that's true. Well, um, the the difference is the 2016 election. Right. Um, in which uh, many people believe that Donald Trump was elected by rural voters. Right. And, um, uh, and quote unquote, non-educated or non-college educated white rural males. Mm -hmm. um, so there's this, uh, what I would call mythology that has built up um, around uh, rural voters. Then uh, this, this happens every election with one group or another. Mm -hmm. You know, we had soccer moms and, um, uh, 
you know, we'll, and there'll be something else in the next election, um, educated suburban women. And, and so reporters get focused on these, this notion of there's this group and we have to capture them somehow. Uh, but what hasn't changed <clears throat> is that uh, the sort of demonizing of people that you see in Appalachia by outside media, you know, that's been a constant. Mm -hmm. um, and that happens with rural people, I think, all over the country. Um, I, I thought about it as um, there is both a sort of there, there there's this idea of romanticizing rural america these are the wild and mild places the places to go recreate the places where you know people work by you know they built themselves up by their bootstraps and they work hard and they're independent and you know farmers and ranchers and coal miners and um so there's this romanticizing of rural people and places but at the same time, and among some of the very same people, there's also a demonizing, you know, lack of education, um, talking about, um, you know, obesity, poor health habits, smoking, and and there has been a tendency on the part of some national media to come into rural places with those stereotypes in mind, and then they simply replicate what they've heard, and they don't bother to uh report and look deeper and um so that that hasn't changed it's now in a new context of of voters and um uh, and i think it's probably worse than ever in that regard um because there just is not a, a sophisticated approach to reporting about rural places and rural people um uh, you know, you would never expect a reporter to go into New York City and, and assume that everybody is a particular type, mm -hmm. right? Um, well, that's just as valid for every rural community I've been in. Um, and, uh, and I think a lot of it is generated by the fact that many of the people who do that kind of reporting just don't have any experience with anything other than the urban or suburban lives that they've lived. And, um, uh, and so I think there, you know, I think reporters need an openness and a, and a sense of, I don't, I mean, this is true for any report, any, any story you go into, I don't know, you know, I've, I'm here to learn. One of the most valuable characteristics of a good reporter is the ability to listen and to learn. And a lot of what we see is reporters parachute into places and they don't listen. They have some preconceived notion and they're not into learning. They're into getting the cuts they need or the quotes they need for their story. So I think there, that just creates the opportunity to really miss reality. I'm curious when you were, so rural America broadly was kind of your beat for 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. Um, how did that's really daunting. How did you like take that on? Well, the first thing I did was I contacted groups that focus on rural issues and places, the National Rural Health Association, uh, the Economic Research Service of the uh, Agriculture Department, um, the Center for Rural America in Nebraska, 
uh, Center for Rural Strategies here in Whitesburg and other groups. Uh, and just, you know, what are the big issues? I, I'd ask them. Um, but I would also just look for stories that uh, came out of rural places or focused on rural people. Right off the bat, it was clear that there was no shortage of stories. I mean, I um, the tough part was to decide what to work on. And um, so I did rural healthcare stuff. That was so right off the bat, I, you know, that was really clearly a big issue on many fronts. And I did stories on that. Um, but I also, I was interested in stories about how rural Americans are perceived um, and how that affects their ability then to get the same kinds of services that other Americans are used to, you know, broadband and um, electricity and, uh, and then also stories that are unique to rural places and rural people. Um, interesting characters. Like I, I went to uh, this small uh, county in Nebraska. It's the smallest county in Nebraska. It has one town, no traffic lights, 60 miles to the nearest freeway, Walmart, um, and it didn't have a grocery store. Uh, but people in the community, at, actually at the entrepreneurship class in the high school, figured out that they could start a cooperative grocery store in the town. It was 30 miles to the nearest loaf of bread, right? Um, so they organized a little cooperative grocery store for the town. And um, it turned out, I saw this story and I thought that's really interesting. It turned out a lot of rural communities were facing the same thing. And even even um, some had department stores that had pulled out of town. So there were some community uh, mercantile co-ops forming. So I went to this you know little town in Nebraska and my first lesson about entrepreneurship in the town, other than the the grocery store was when I tried to book a room at the local motel, it turns out that it was this cinder block place called the bunkhouse. And it had, it, it was started by a couple of kids at the high school as part of their entrepreneurship class. And you picked up the key from the mom of one of the kids um, at work at the uh, vet's clinic. And uh, you just left the key, you know, on the refrigerator when you left. Um <laughs> And there were I, there were other entrepreneurs in the town who you know kind of people. There was a guy who made cowboy hats, um, actually had made cowboy hats for presidents of the United States, and um, operated his business from this little town. I mean, it was just rich with characters. And there was a dog sleeping on Main Street without being threatened by traffic. You know, <laughs> like such a stereotype. Um, but I found things like that. Um, and people like that and places like that all over the country. Um, I just loved, absolutely loved that beat. W one of my favorite stories. Do you want to hear a favorite story? Of course okay. I do. Yes. One of my favorite. Or a few. <laughs> okay. Well, one of my favorite stories was um, the, the uh, census came out, the 2000 census, uh, I think it was, came out. And uh, the Census Bureau did an analysis of which counties in the country had a, a reverse wage gap where women made more than men on average? And they were all rural counties. Uh, and so I said, I'm going to go to the county that has the biggest reverse wage gap where women made, I think it was 30 or 40% more than men. 
And it was this county in Texas that, again, it was a place that had no traffic light, no grocery store, no motel. Um, uh, and it was mostly people who worked for a huge ranch uh, in Texas, uh, the King Ranch. Some people may have heard of it. Massive private ranch. And so most of the men were cowboys. And most of the women did all the 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 jobs they worked in the county um uh at the county courthouse they did they had the county jobs um they also the the veterinarians they were women and and most of the professional jobs were held by women the school teachers the principal you know all these people were women and so they had uh regular jobs with regular paychecks and benefits the men who were working as cowboys didn't get paid very much but they got a pickup truck to use all year. They got a side of beef. You know, everyone got a side of beef. And so they had these sort of other benefits on top of their sort of skimpy pay. And, um, and that story was so much fun because uh, they also didn't have public radio there and nobody had ever heard of public radio. And, um, and, uh, but they, and they were, they were just completely puzzled. Why are you doing the story? What difference does it make that my wife makes way more than me? Like what, what, you know, really, I mean, they really, they humored me. They, uh, they were good natured about it and humored me. And, um, I, I remember even talking to some, there was a little girl, uh, who wanted to become a vet like her mom. And I said, well, do you know, she was a little girl, she was about nine or 10. And I said, you know, you're likely to make much more than your husband. If your husband works at the ranch and you're the vet, what do you think about that? And, you know, she was just like, well, what, it doesn't matter. You know, it's like, <laughs> what difference does it make? Um, but that, that's what was really fun about it because it was a place that most people in America would never dream existed. Um, the idea of driving 30 miles for the grocery store, the ranch had a, had a little country store, you know, where people could buy stuff, but a full grocery store, a gas station, a stoplight, um, all of that was in the next county, you know, at least 30 miles away, a, a motel. And, um, and people just absolutely loved their lives. And like this, this pay difference, like made no difference whatsoever. Well, and it contradicts sort of some kind of, um, perceptions of rural areas and elsewhere, right. Around being, conservative and gender roles and all sorts of things. Right. Like, that's a right. fun piece it, of that it, story too. It challenges so much of what we think about. And, um, and also, you know, the leadership in the community, it was, it was, you know, the men are sort of off herding cows and doing this stuff and they're really long days. And, you know, there's the women in the community who ran things and who made decisions and who held offices and, um, and, and, it was not strange to anybody there. You know, it all just sort of, this is the way we live and it works fine. And the men weren't offended and, you know, right. yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was, um, uh, and I like discovering those, the, those things that challenge our conventional notions. Can I ask you here about, you mentioned a story at lunch about ants. So before, when, when I was covering the West, before I covered rural America, as I said, I, a lot of stories I did were in rural places in the West. And there are so many great characters. As you, as you know, in this community, you know, there are people who are doing like really interesting things, sometimes oddball things, you know, but it's what makes a community 
interesting, creative, you know, different and, and, and special. And I discovered this guy whose profession was to collect ants for ant farms. You know, you'd, you know, you'd order these ant farms, mail order ant farms, and it, and it would come with ants, you know, in it, in the ant farm. And, um, it was this guy's job to collect ants. And this was in a small town in Southern Utah, where apparently the ants that are there are especially suited. They can survive the shipping process and all this stuff. And, um, you know, I asked him if he had any special tools and he said, yeah, he says, I go down to Dairy Queen and I get a straw <laughs> with a little scoop on the end and that's what I use. And if it gets worn out, I go back and get another one. And this guy was making over a hundred thousand dollars a year collecting ants in a community where probably the, you know, average household income was more like 30 or 40,000 at the time. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, yeah. Um, America is filled with people who are doing, you know, things you just never thought would You'd never exist. think of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for this interview and for 38 years of making really important radio. <laughs> now it's time to have fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> radio was fun. No, yeah. career was fun. Different there are a lot fun. of fun stories, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, enjoy sure. it. Well, I appreciate you being interested. Yeah, for sure. That was Howard Burkus, who joined us in the studio at WMMT this spring to talk about his nearly 40-year career as a reporter for National Public Radio. And that wraps up this episode of Mountain Talk, exploring Appalachian and rural communities' relationships to national media coverage. If you'd like to hear this or previous episodes again, you can find them on our website at wmmt.org or download Mountain Talk as a podcast from SoundCloud or Stitcher. Music on this episode features John Harrod with a tune called Hickory Jack from his 2018 album Johnny Come Along. That album was released on Apple Shop's own June Apple Recordings. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio.